This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of IP in a Pod. My name is Rahim Herji. I'm a trainee solicitor in our IP department, and I'm joined by my colleagues Pete Bird and David Fifield. In this episode, we'll be discussing design rights, which are rights relating to protection for novel designs that you may create. There are two types of design rights, registered and unregistered, and the details of the protection offered by these rights differs depending on whether they are registered in the UK or in the EU. We will be recording this episode in two parts. Part one will focus on design rights in the EU, and part two will focus on design rights in the UK. In both parts, we will discuss what the rights are and how they can be enforced. We will also look at case law examples in part two, and at the end of part one, we'll touch on the impact of Brexit. So without further ado, I think David will be kicking us off with a summary of EU registered designs. Thanks, Raheem. There are two types of registered design that have effect in the UK, so UK national registered designs and European community registered designs. In um, community registered designs give the owner protection throughout all the member states of the EU and at least for the time being the UK. Community registered designs can be obtained in relation to the appearance of the whole or part of a product or its ornamentation. Uh, the design has to be new, and it has to have what's called individual character. So something's not new if it's the same as an earlier design, one that's been made available to the public, um, or if it only differs in immaterial details, and a design has individual character if the overall impression it produces on an informed user differs from the overall impression produced on an informed user by any earlier published design. By informed user, I mean a user or purchaser of products of the type concerned who takes an interest in them and is familiar with designs for products of that type. So, for example, in a design dispute concerning the Trunky Children's Ride on Suitcase, the informed user was considered to be the parent who buys the type of product rather than a toddler who may actually use it. But in many cases, the informed user will be actually someone who uses the product concerned. Now, there are some exclusions from protection for community registered designs. So that's features of a design of a product whose appearance is dictated solely by their technical function and also features of the appearance that must be reproduced in their exact shape or form so that the product can be connected to another product so that either may perform their function unless the design is part of is for a sort of modular system. So, for example, if you had a design for a plug to fit into a socket, then you wouldn't get design protection in the pins of the plug because they have to be the shape that they are so that the plug fits into its socket. Now, the person who is normally entitled to apply to register a design will be the person, the individual or team of individuals who created it, or if the creator is an employee and the design was created in the course of their employment, then it will be their employer. Um, so you do need to take a bit of care here if you commission someone else to produce a design for you. If at all possible, you need to take an assignment of all the IP rights in it um, from a creator and include it the right to apply for registrations for the design. Registered designs can last for up to 25 years, subject to a payment of renewal fees every five years. And I'm going to talk a bit more about the formalities for registering community designs later. But Pete, there aren't just community registered designs are there there are also unregistered community designs how do they differ yeah that's right so when you don't have registered rights either because you've chosen not to or 
because your registered rights aren't sufficient, then there is a fallback position under the EU regime known as community design right. Today, we're going to look at the EU regime, um, and in the next podcast, we'll look at the corresponding UK regime, but it's worth noting that they are quite different. But EU unregistered design right or community design right is derived from the same legislation as the registered design regime, which David, you've just been talking about. So a lot of the a lot of the considerations are are the same. For designs to qualify for protection under the unregistered community design right regime, the same standard of novelty and individual character as the registered regime is required. And there's similar protection for surface decoration and the similar restrictions on the protection of designs which are dictated by their technical function. So on the whole, you can assume that they're broadly similar. The main difference, though, is the term of protection. Community design right only lasts for three years from the date that it's first disclosed in the EU. And this raises an interesting question of whether unregistered community design right subsists at all in designs which have been disclosed outside of the EU and whether they can ever benefit from protection. There are a few conflicting decisions at the moment across EU member states on this, but there's no CJEU decision. So that's something that we just need to need to hold out for. So really, that's the main the main sort of differences. And you uh, community unregistered design right actually because of its short lifespan, you don't see relied on a huge amount, but it is useful in industries where the value of the design is is, is short lived, such as the fashion industry. So if you if you invent a new piece of clothing, you don't necessarily need to go to the trouble of registering the design and every type of design, but you still do have some protection when it's needed and during the period in which it's needed. But really our advice, if you wanted to benefit from the protection of your designs, would be to obtain registered protection if possible. But that's not always as straightforward as it may sound, David, is it? No, that's right. Now, if you do want to apply for a community registered design, uh, you have to apply to the it's called the European Union Intellectual Property Office. And as part of your application, you have to submit a sample or images to illustrate what your design is. And these images are then subsequently published so people can see what your registration is for. Images that you use to illustrate your design can come in a variety of forms. You can use line drawings. 3D rendered CAD images, you can use photographs, but the choice of it form does impact on what is considered your design for the purposes of protection. So for example, a line drawing will typically show the shape of a product or parts of a product, whereas a photograph may show other features of a design such as color, shading, or qualities of the material that the product is made from. Now in some cases, you may want to apply for two or more designs showing your product using a different form, so showing the same product but depicted using line drawings and then using photographs, or also apply at the same time for designs that relate to parts of your product rather than the whole appearance of your product in order to give yourself the broadest possible protection. When you file your application, you can submit several views of a product, such as from the top, front, back, rear. Um, it's important that the views have to be consistent and show or you have to show exactly the same design, and you also have to use the same method to pick, to pick the design in each view. So you have to use all line drawings in one application or all photographs. With community registered designs, 
you can't really use text to help explain what your design is or if you want to exclude any features from the scope of your design registration. Now, you can use visual methods to help disclaim features, but care does need to be taken with these to make sure that it's done in an appropriate manner. For example, dotted lines can be used on a line drawing to indicate that something in an image is not part of the design that you're trying to protect. For example, you may include a feature just to help illustrate what the product is. But this can create difficulties of interpretation, for example, if a dotted or dashed pattern is part of the design of the product itself. Now, once you've worked out the most appropriate way to represent your design and file your application, the office will examine it to check it meets the basic requirements regarding form. So, for example, that all the views are consistent and they're all using the same form of representation. But the office doesn't check whether the design is new or has individual character. So this means that in many cases, an application will proceed quite quickly and it can be quite straightforward to obtain a registration. Once the office is satisfied that an application's met its requirements, then the design will be published and third parties can file oppositions to its grant, for example, on the basis that they may own rights in earlier designs. If there are no oppositions or any opposition is unsuccessful, uh, then the design will proceed to registration. One very good thing about community registered designs is that for a right that gives you protection across all, all EU member states, the official fees are pretty low. So there's an official fee of 500 euros for your first design. And then, it, um, and then there are discounts for additional applications that are filed at the same time in relation to the same type of product. So this, in a way, encourages you to file multiple designs in relation to the same product so that you can show different aspects of a design, different part, different features, um, and also variations of a design. Now, although the, the official fees are quite low, you could have additional fees. For example, if you need to instruct a draftsman to help with the creation of images that are suitable for use in your application. And also if you want to instruct a law firm to assist you with the application for a registration to try and ensure you get the best possible protection for your design. And actually, David, I think that's a, it's an interesting point because this is certainly from my experience and I think from your experience that whilst actually filing the designs themselves is relatively straightforward and the process with the, the trademark or with the designs office is very uh, straightforward. Actually, the, the key thing here is getting the right protection and there's quite a lot of work that goes into what you actually put together before you even file, isn't there? That's right. Yeah, I mean, you do need to give often do need a bit to give it quite careful consideration to to get the best protection you can within the client's budget for filing applications. There are a few pitfalls which may only become evident at a point when you want to try and enforce your registered design. And you can find that unfortunately you're sort of stuck with a registration which wasn't quite as good as you could have made it if you'd given it careful consideration at the outset. But that does mean, of course, that it can be a little more expensive because that does take a bit of time. I think that sort of quite nicely brings us on to the issue of enforcing a registered design when you, once you've got one. So a later design will infringe a community registered design if it doesn't create a different overall impression on an informed user. And there are a few steps to this. So first is you have to sort of work out what the scope of protection of a registered design is. So, for example, you first have to work out if there are any features within it that are excluded from protection, for example, because they are dictated by technical function. You have to also consider the design freedom in relation to the type of design concerned, because with a lot of products, they all often have constraints on design freedom. So, for example, packaging for products will often have to be 
an approximate certain shape or size for transport reasons and because the food is sold in certain quantities and you also have to consider the design corpus so these were designs that were known in the relevant field before the date of application for registered design and if there are lots of similar ish designs then this can mean your registration only has quite a narrow scope of protection whereas if your design is very distinctive from earlier designs then it may be given a wider scope of protection and so something can look a bit a bit more different and still infringe now with a registered design you don't have to show that the alleged infringer copied or was even aware of your original design or design registration which is a great benefit because it's a monopoly right now, Raheem, I think you've been looking into an example of infringement in relation to a registered design to help sort of illustrate some of the points we've been talking about. Yeah, thanks, David. So one of the cases that I've found which does quite nicely um, reflect some of the issues you just talked about is a case called Utopia Tableware against BBP Marketing Limited from 2013. And this was with regards to the infringement of a registered design. And in this case, the claimant Utopia had registered a design for a beer glass called the Aspen glass. And the defendant BBP had a glass called the Aspire glass. Now, the defendant actually admitted that the exterior dimensions of its Aspire glass had been copied from Utopia's Aspen glass. However, the defendant said that the glasses were different in that the internal dimensions of the glass and the thickness of the wall of the glass were not copied. And therefore, it said that the impression that an informed user would get from its glass was different to that of Utopia's glass. One of the key arguments here was who exactly the informed user would be. The defendant put forward that the informed user was simply an average beer drinker or an average pub goer. That is someone who would be unlikely to pay too much attention to the detail of the design of the glass. However, the court disagreed. And the court actually said that informed user in this case would be someone who had knowledge of the design of their glasses, had an interest in the design of their glasses and showed a relatively high degree of attention when using their glasses. And with that in mind, the court said the informed user would be able to tell the difference between the glasses and there would be an overall different impression on the informed user of the two products. Another point that the court made in this case was that the product in question, namely a tall waisted beer glass, only allows a very limited amount of design freedom in general because of what it is. There's not too much that you can do to it to change it, and therefore the degree of design freedom is limited. What this meant is that small differences between different designs of beer glasses would be more likely to produce a different impression on the informed user. So in concluding that the informed user would receive a different overall impression from the two glasses, the court highlighted that this was because even though the differences between the designs were small, i.e. the interior dimensions and the thickness of the glass, these small differences were enough due to the limits on design freedom of the tall waisted beer glass. So they were enough to produce a, a different impression on the informed user and therefore infringement of Utopia's design had been found. Thanks Raheem, that's, uh, that's a really interesting case to look at. I think the final thing for us to look at today is, is actually the enforcement of unregistered community design rights. And actually, there's not a huge amount more to add to what David's already mentioned here. The key things are all the same. But one thing to, well, there's, there are three things really to bear in mind. The first thing is the duration, as I've already mentioned, unregistered design rights only subsists for three years. And that's, you know, that can be very problematic. 
The second thing to mention is, and in stark contrast to, to registered design right, is that unregistered design right is distinctly not a monopoly right. And this means that rather than just sort of having the rights by virtue of having a registration, it, when it comes to enforcing the rights, you're going to need to establish how you have it, i.e. you're going to have to plead out how the right comes into existence. The implications of this are quite massive because actually you're going to need to say how it was developed, who it was developed by, when it was developed. And this generally makes it much harder and much more time consuming to enforce, therefore increases the cost quite dramatically. And then the third key difference is that you'll need to prove copying. Under the registered regime, if a design is, is similar to or create the same overall impression on the informed user as a registered design, that's enough. But in the unregistered design right regime, you're going to need to prove somehow that the alleged infringer has copied your design. So again, there's a much higher evidential burden here and it's much more difficult and costly to prove. The key benefits really, um, and we'll discuss this probably in more detail in the next podcast where we're discussing UK rights more generally, but a key benefit of the unregistered design right regime is that you can select small parts of the design and then you're not nailing your colours to the mast at the start as you are with your registration. So there might be a scenario where an infringing product doesn't create the same overall impression as the design that you've registered as a whole, but may have taken smaller bits or certain elements of that design. Therefore, you can enforce your unregistered design right in those bits against the infringing product. Thanks, Pete. Just to close off part one of this episode, could we talk about the elephant in the room, which is that obviously the UK will be leaving the European Union soon. So what impact will Brexit have on UK businesses and UK based owners of design rights, European Union design rights? Will, will they still have protection after Brexit or, or, or what happens there? So in relation to uh, the community registered designs, I mean, the owners will still have their community registered design. It's just that from the end of the transition period, its protection will no longer extend to the UK. So you'll no longer be able to rely on that particular design right in case in, if someone infringes, otherwise it would infringe your, your registered design. However, owners of community registered designs that are registered as at the date when the transition period ends will automatically be entitled to a cloned UK registered design which will essentially give them equivalent protection in the UK. So they'll end up with two rights. They'll still have their community registered design, but they'll also have their UK registered design. And uh, in the future, UK individuals and businesses will still be able to apply for community registered designs. You can own a community registered design wherever you happen to be from. So there's no issue from that point of view with registered designs. Position is a little bit more tricky in relation to unregistered design rights, I believe. Isn't that right, Pete? Yes. As far as unregistered design rights are concerned, a comparable UK right will come into existence and that will uh, that will exist separate to the EU rights. So any rights that you have at the moment under EU unregistered design rights will still apply in the UK after the end of the transition period. That in itself is going to be slightly confusing because, as we'll see from the next part of this podcast, there is already a type of UK unregistered design right, which is very different to, uh, to this regime. And it raises further issues 
regarding disclosure of designs and I mentioned this earlier on in the podcast that it's not quite clear at the moment if a design is first disclosed or first displayed outside of the EU whether design right will even exist in the EU and there's this difference uh, there's a difference of opinion among the courts of EU member states at the moment but this is going to get even more complicated after Brexit because Perhaps a design that's published, that's first published in the EU, might therefore not qualify for protection under this right in the UK, and vice versa. And at the moment, we have absolutely zero clarity on that and what's going to happen. So that's something that we're going to have to watch out for. Great. Thanks, Pete. And thanks, David. That's a really clear summary of what the effects of Brexit on EU design rights will be. That brings a close to part one of our two-part episode on design rights. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us for part two, where we'll be considering UK design rights and looking at some more interesting design rights cases. Thank you. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.